Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Paul Ballou. Paul is the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at the NFL, a role he's held since September of 2021. He is among the most seasoned data and analytics leaders, having led those functions at General Motors, Nationwide, Dun & Bradstreet, Ford Motor Company, and Loblaw Companies prior to his current post. Paul is also a board member at Hyatt Hotels Corporation, a past board member at Newstar. I look forward to hearing more about the role that data and analytics play in the most popular of American sports, as well as the evolution of the disciplines associated with each from across his career. Paul, welcome. It's great to speak with you today. Thanks, Peter. Well, Paul, you know, as I mentioned, you are a, uh, a seasoned executive in a discipline that is still in the grand scheme of things in most organizations relatively new. And actually, there's an experience of yours I didn't mention in that uh, bio that I want to begin with and use this as an opportunity for us to talk a bit about the evolution of data and analytics. You began your data journey uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, where you were a research economist. Uh, and when you joined the Fed, I think you mentioned to me in a past conversation, there were roughly 32 or 34 economists and 20 librarians who were responsible in many cases for pulling the data that, that you as an economist would then assess and analyze. And it strikes me as a good starting point for the evolution of data analytics, that when you began in it, it was still very people intensive. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about, as you reflect back in those early stages of your journey, the power, but also the limitations of data and analytics. As I look back on it, and by the way, Peter, just sometimes makes you feel a little old when people go back and read my resume. <laughs> I've been around for so long now. Three and a half decades ago, when this journey started for me, the core of what we were trying to do is somewhat similar to what we're trying to do today. And that is generate insights to drive actions. And those actions for the Fed was better policymaking, better supervision and regulation of financial institutions, opining on complex things such as mergers and banking at the time, the Interstate Banking Act was coming forward, and we were spending a lot of time in that area. Uh, the advocacy of, of other things from a public policy standpoint, we were intimately involved in all sorts of restructuring and manufacturing, and the NAFTA agreement, for instance, was a big part of the work we did. So what we were trying to do is similar to what we do today, but the limitations are just, it's almost mind numbing to think about how far we progressed from that period of time. The data limitations were, were upon us every single day. We had to rely on government statistics. We had to rely on surveys, largely the census or other economic surveys that were occurring, all sorts of latency issues that went along with it. And then the manual nature that you referenced of how we would get data, go to the librarians, ask them to find this record for us, ask them to make this request, and then once we had it, how we then had to organize it, which was also very labor intensive. Uh, I laugh sometimes with my very young staff. I remind them of things like Lotus 123 was such a massive innovation for us. We had one computer amongst 37 economists, and we all had to sign up for it to use it. And it was a, a standalone computer, and it really only had two applications, one of which was Lotus 123, which was our first spreadsheet for those of you that don't know that was the predecessor of excel and the ubiquitous nature of excel so i look back on it now and go my goodness gracious how things have transformed and they've transformed on the dimensions that we take for granted data availability elimination of latency transactional and observational data not just survey data the ability to capture and process all the analytic tools that we now have at our disposal and then also helping the data come to life, data visualization tools, workflows, all of the things that now we just get up every day and go, wow, you know, that's just what we do for our job. We couldn't have even dreamed of that three and a half decades ago. 
we were at the point of, of handing off our work to graphic artists who would draw our charts and graphs for us. And then we'd put them into some type of white paper or some type of presentation, convert them into slides, by the way, which would take like five days to get the slides back and get them right. And then you'd present and synchronize slide projectors. Can you even imagine that? So yes, yeah, so those are times I, I feel like a dinosaur, but I, I would say one thing that I have never lost in all of that was the passion for insights and good problem formulation skills. So the same sets of core skills that we needed back in the 80s, we still need today. We have to be able to formulate the problem, understand the process, do good hypothesis testing, be disciplined in our valuation or validation of the work. And then on the other side, work with the partners to consume and leverage that information. Uh, so yes, I, by the way, I started my career before we even had landing pages on what we called the World Wide Web, because that didn't even exist. The Federal Reserve didn't even have a landing page when I first started. <laughs> That's really interesting. And, and I can only imagine, um, as you uh, mentioned to me in the past as well, that that part of the challenge was timeliness and completeness of data to say nothing of the fact that when there's so much manual work done, the, the, the opportunities or problems of errors uh, are exacerbated along the way as well. I wanted to ask you a little bit, as you progressed through your own series of leadership roles in corporate America in a data and analytics function, it really, again, for somebody, for a discipline that in so many organizations, as I referenced before, is relatively new, you have quite a tenure, 98 to 07 with General Motors, nationwide from 07 to 12, Dun & Bradstreet from 12 to 15, Ford from 15 to 19, a second uh, stop in the in the auto industry, Loblaw companies from 19 to 21, we'll get to your, your current set of responsibilities momentarily. But I wonder, as you've begun to already reflect in your, your first answer, I'd love to understand a little bit from you about some of the difference makers along the way that, that took us from the, the point of, of having very manual assessments and analyses, as you described, to one where greater levels of timeliness and completeness of data and, and, and relatively error-free uh, um, analysis uh, compared to, to past times. What were some of the difference makers along the way through that evolution, please? To me, the one of the moments as I look back on my career that I, I find to be a, a very important inflection point was my tenure at GM. GM at the time had the resources and the wherewithal to make investments and data capabilities, not just reporting and forecasting and planning, which we did. Uh, we ran one of the largest organizations in data and analytics in the world at that point in time. We didn't call it data and analytics. We call it research and forecasting and planning and strategic support. But that's really what it was. It was in its early stages. And to me, what, what GM did ahead of its time was to make sizable investments on the data side of the equation. That was where the quantum leap occurred. It was the ability to capture transactional and observational data for the first time. It was the ability to connect with individuals on a transactional basis, which also meant using analytics to drive those insights. And we were doing it at scale and doing it in multiple markets. We were doing it in Europe as well as in the US. And GM really had, to their credit, a forward-leaning approach to this because it's the late 90s. And if you think about the late 90s in the automotive industry, after going through 15, 20 years of turmoil, the industry was trying to figure itself out, manufacturing, customer relationships and marketing, what was going on in pricing and incentives, what was happening in safety. The laundry list of things we supported was very, very long. And GM, prior to my arrival, 
I really felt had a, a couple of, of very forward leading leaders that got it. And they actually spoke the mantra we now all talk about data driven insights, so those sorts of terminologies that are kind of cliches now for us in our industry. GM was actually using them in the 90s. Ron Zarella came over from Procter and Gamble. And Ron brought that PNG discipline and mindset into marketing first and then into North America. And then Rick Wagner, our CEO and ultimately our CEO and chairman, was very oriented towards making technology investments, especially in the data and analytics organization. And I think importantly, having that organization with the seat at the table. I reported to him, which was a real interesting journey in all of this. And I had a seat at every single table during that entire journey, because he saw the power, he saw it was being harnessed and coming together. And I really think those two things are critically important when I look back at GM. It was number one, we were making investments in capturing transactional data and using it at scale. And secondly, we began to have that part of the organization have it the seat at the table. And I give the leadership a lot of credit, Ron Zarella, Rick Wagner, John Middlebrook, Bill Lovejoy, all of these leaders, which, by the way, inherited a very tough situation, because you think about what they inherited at GM with pensions and healthcare and all the things that ultimately led to the bankruptcy, uh, they were navigating their way through it in a very fact-based way, which was very impressive. If I move outside of that and I go into financial services, financial services is a, is a fascinating one for me, Peter, because in one regard, they are on the cutting edge, and on the other side, they are behind. And it's almost this chasm with financial institutions. I, I look at it both in my tenure at DNB, rebuilding the data and analytics function for a credit bureau, and then nationwide going into the journey of leveraging data beyond credit risk. And what I mean by that for financial services is financial services on the credit risk side, phenomenal, cutting edge. In, in fact, when you look at an end-to-end stage gate process, we now use in analytics. Financial institutions have been doing it for 30 plus years. You can argue longer than that. And really, we're on the cutting edge. But what financial institutions have really struggled with is to take that data and analytic mindset around risk management, which, of course, is the core secret sauce of what they do, and then apply it into other things they're doing, especially on the customer experience and the customer interaction side. So at Nationwide, they had a CEO, Jerry Jurgensen, who said, I want to transform that part of what we do. I want to see my customers completely. I want to know them and I want to interact with them. Uh, Jerry used to say, if we only had one customer, how would we know them and treat them? And then his task to my organization was to say, okay, I want to take that exact same mindset through science and apply it to 15 million people. He had that, that comprehensive view of what we now call single complete and actual view of the individual. And that was a quantum leap in my thinking to see where personalization could go through the power of analytics and the customer experience side. And so when I look back at it, I really see my foundation being at the Fed from a discipline standpoint, GM from the appreciation that there's more to life than survey data and government statistics, and the ability of the power of taking latency out and having transactional data. And then nationwide, to Jerry's credit, and Jim Liske, who was the chief marketing officer there, their forward-leaning approach to saying this personalization thing at scale can work, and we can do this. And now, of course, if you fast forward at 15 years later, everybody's now saying, I want to do personalization at scale. That's remarkably we doing- aggressive given the, time, the timing of, of, of these insights by, by, by uh, the executives there. 
Exactly. So I, I look back on it and say those two moments were just unbelievable for me to go through. Uh, because at the time, if you think of the field, there wasn't really even a field called data analytics until roughly 15 years ago. We didn't have that. I, I never had the title until 2007, 2008, but yet I had the role during that entire period of time. Hmm. Very interesting. I appreciate you, you walking through that, that sequence. That brings us, of course, to the, your current role. Uh, since September of 2021, uh, you, you've been the data and analytics leader uh, at the NFL. And talk a bit about that opportunity. It is the most popular of American sports. Uh, it is, I, I know you're a football fan of the Detroit Lions. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that and their prospects in the year ahead. But uh, talk a bit about what attracted you to this opportunity uh, in the first place. It was one of those things where at this stage of my career, do I want to do this one more time? I've done it a half dozen times. You know, you build an organization from scratch. You go through all the change management dimensions. But my love of sports, my love of the game, coupled with the fact that the league is at a very important point where they believe the power of data and analytics can help the league continue to progress. And that's across the spectrum, player health and safety, officiating analytics, what we do for marketing, what we're doing at one-to-one -one at scale with fans, what are we doing with our sponsors? It's a long laundry list. And what attracted me was that sports is actually, besides my love of sports, is sports amongst other fields is behind. If you look at the data and analytics revolution that's been playing out here in the last three decades, financial services, well, I had still have work to do on the customer side, as I mentioned, manufacturing has made tremendous leaps and bounds, whether it's GM, Ford, Toyota, anybody in automotive, but look at the John Deere's of the world and the implement companies who are really on the cutting edge in terms of workflows for farmers and industrial equipment. Retailers are getting there now, but sports absent things that have more sizzle to them or maybe player evaluations in, in some parts of sports has really lagged. And so the opportunity to come in with a love for sports, realizing that the league needs to take that next step. And that next step is across all of those dimensions to fully leverage. It was just too good to pass up. And it's one of those things for me and at this stage of my career where I can help people make new mistakes. Uh, it's kind of the way I view things and hopefully help them progress. And almost a year into it, we're, we're making a lot of progress, enjoying every moment of it. The league and the 32 clubs have embraced what we're trying to do in a systematic way, which makes this also very enjoyable for us. Uh, and there's just a lot to do. Uh, the world's changing structurally. That's the other thing I'd point out for sports, uh, just like what I saw in other industries, there becomes a forcing function. So in manufacturing, my old world of automotive, where I spent all of those decades in, the forcing function was global competition. And that global competition was an intense forcing function for a GM or a Ford. In retail, the forcing function has been called e-commerce and Amazon. It's a big forcing function. Well, sports has its own set of forcing functions, one of which is direct to consumer, what's happening in terms of traditional TV programming and what we call linear programming, what's happening in the way content is being consumed. That's a very, very big forcing function for sports. And you see it in regional sports telecasts, which has struggled a bit. The NFL, fortunately, is on the other end. We're not struggling. But to the credit of, of Roger, our commissioner, he is forward-leaning as the other leaders are saying, look, the future is there. 
And for us to be ready for that future, we have to be able to have that set of capabilities. On top of the other things, we want to continue to improve the integrity of the game always. Player health and safety is critically important to the integrity of the game and the well-being of our players. So there's forcing functions, and those forcing functions are good because without that forcing function, data analytics finds itself in a tough spot because Mm -hmm. it involves so much transformational work that if we don't have some forcing function or burning platform, it makes it a little harder for us to drive adoption. Yeah, very interesting. And you allude to some of the complexity, Paul. Um, you know, as we think about the to- topic of personalization, which came up in a different context a, a few moments ago, uh, the constituent groups that you might personalize to, the fans, the sponsors, the players, the team executives, the networks, the NFL front office, et cetera, and I'm not even, I haven't even uh, listed off an exhaustive list there. Um, how do you think about uh, personalization to such a variety of constituent groups in, in the uh, you know creative use of data and analytics? I think it's important for us always to understand the audience and understand that you're bringing the audience along the journey with you. You just can't get up in the morning and, and just say, hey, we're the kids from central office and we're smart and, and go from there. In fact, I think one of the biggest lessons from GM was we underestimated the need to work with whoever we were serving or whatever we were building closer. And it's the same thing in in the NFL. We spent a lot of time with the 32 teams. We call it the power of 33, but you're trying to get 33 entities aligned around doing something. And personalization with fans has been quite an intense journey for us to get there. And I I really think it's the next phase of, of our field and our profession. Our profession has gone through in the last my three and a half decades, this desert of no data to now a flood of data. And therefore we're solving the issues around data management. If you look at the importance of data management, it's just gone up and up and up and up and up. For a long time, we struggled with our ability to leverage it from an analytics standpoint and create output that would go into some form of workflow tools. We've largely addressed that as well. If you think about what's happened in marketing with always on and and unsupervised methods. The next big hill for us, and maybe a mountain in data and analytics is going to be the business transformation side. It's the ability to make sure that the audience that you're working with can take full advantage of what you do. And you're seeing more and more elements in data and analytics of having a business transformation office, having a group that is focused on change management and business engagement. And it's interesting because to some degree, we're leveraging a model that consulting shops use. And I would argue that oftentimes the data and analytics group is an internal consulting shop, that that's the way we need to view ourselves. And increasingly, I think that that model is what the model of the future will necessitate from us. Otherwise, we become a science project. Yeah, very interesting. I also wanted to ask you across the many uh, roles you've played, Talk a bit about the teams that you have built. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're the cynics who would probably uh, grossly oversimplify and say that, look, today's data and analytics leaders are yesterday's statisticians just with better titles and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, with better tools at their disposal and so on. But this has become, you know, some of the hottest talent out there in a, in a period, generally speaking, where there is a remarkable war for talent. You might certainly argue that the war is hottest for people that have you know, analytics uh, backgrounds and so on. Talk a bit about, you know, the the roles that are that you're hiring for today, different from roles you hired uh, for a decade ago and how that talent has elevated rather along the way. 
Yeah, the, the world has, has certainly changed. So if you go back to early on in my career, um, we were econometricians for the most part at the Fed. That was our training. Uh, but we were more economists than econometricians. Some of us had a heavier quant background, but that's that's really where we were. Um, I would say the field quickly morphed into market research and into some type of industrial organizational elements to it. Uh, and then we went away from just having business analysts to now we're a field of, of specialization all over the place. And where you see it is in two areas. Number one, data. So data was the purview three decades ago of IT. There was no organization that's serious about data analytics right now doesn't have a central data organization. And you see titles such as data engineer, data engineer with the data governance orientation, data engineer with the data architecture orientation, all of those sub-disciplines coming out. And that really reflects the fact that we didn't need those capabilities 30 years ago because there was nothing you could have done with them. Now you need those capabilities, not to mention you add in privacy and other things that have really morphed into very, very hot fields. On the analytics side, certainly data scientists have come of age, but I would describe data scientists as being different than just econometricians or statisticians that have fancy your titles. What you're now seeing is, is somebody that really has the complete package. Yes, they have the quant skills to go along with it, but they have an applied nature. They have the ability to work with business partners. They have the ability to understand process and process redesign. And not surprisingly, we're finding more and more people coming out of fields like applied mathematics or applied psychology versus the traditional fields. The traditional fields for data analytics was stats, econometrics, and physics. Those were the three dominant fields early on because they all had some form of quant background or some form of scientific method oriented to their, to their discipline. We're morphing. Uh, and then I think the last part of this, so we're in the early phases of, you'll see more and more process scientists in the field in the next five to 10 years. We're starting to see that become a sub-discipline evolving very rapidly. And as that sub-discipline evolves very rapidly, uh, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. Paul, a lot of I, I referenced in a prior conversation between the two of us, the fact that um, the tenures for chief data and analytics officers still remains fairly low in years. You actually have really bucked that trend, quite frankly. I'm curious from your own perspective, what have been the limiting factors? Why do you perceive peers of yours having shorter tenures on average than other C-suite uh, type roles, chief, chief roles? Uh, and, and what have been the difference makers for, for you uh, in combating some of those same, those same factors? Well, I think there's two things going on. First of all, the market's red hot, might be white hot as a way to describe it, and therefore people get poached. And they get poached with, for financial reasons, work-life reasons, geography, whatever that is. Then secondly, I think in many legacy companies, not the digital natives, because the digital natives, that's just the churn mindset of, of the digital natives. But within legacy organizations, data analytics professionals have really struggled at times, especially if they get the title and the responsibility to have the impact that they want to have or the impact the business is expecting them to have. And therefore, 18 months, two years into the journey, there's a little bit of this marriage isn't working the way I want this marriage to work, uh, which is why it's so very important that when you go down this journey, you do have executive buy-in, you do have the executive commitment, but also that you're holding yourselves accountable to delivering. And that delivery includes some low-hanging fruit, that delivery also includes capabilities that are going to really help the business transform itself. Um, I... 
always describe the blessings of, of a good data analytics leader is when they're the trusted advisor, where they don't have to say, hey, I need a seat at the table, but you automatically have a seat at the table. And I'm, I'm very proud to say in, in my tenure, for the most part, I always had the seat at the table, not having to ask for a seat at the table. But that came because I had a great team working very closely with the business and we ultimately delivered. Uh, it was one of those wonderful commitments that we make early on is that we have to deliver, we have to execute, we have to put points on the board, we have to make sure there's value coming. And then once you do that, you get a seat at the table. And if you get up in the morning and really understand what it takes to be a trusted advisor, that's what it's all about. Uh, I look back at my 10 years at GM, the CEO of GM would have never done anything without me. And that wasn't that because I was good, it was my team was great. And you saw the value in what we did and then ultimately involved us in everything. There was almost nothing that went on at that company that we weren't involved in, which is pretty amazing given the fact that it was a Fortune 5 company at that time and data and analytics was early in its, in its journey. Uh, that to me is really what the commitment is. Uh, and my best piece of advice on that front is probably don't ever underestimate the human dimension to this journey. We're scientifically oriented, but the human dimension matters. You have to be able to connect. You have to be able to deliver value. You have to be able to help people understand what you're doing and you really have to invest the time. Yeah, very very interesting. Can, can you also mention um, how your reporting relationships have changed over the years? You must have had a diversity of people to whom you have reported. Can you talk a bit about, uh, about those connection points and what they say about uh, the role that data and analytics played in each of those organizations? It's it's interesting to, to reflect back. You know, the Fed was the Fed. I reported to the head of economic research and, and then ultimately into Washington. That was its own. But when I went into the private sector, it started off where most data analytics roles either reported to the CMO or some variant, maybe the CIO. That was more on the data side than the analytics side. So when I initially went into GM, that's where the journey started, is I started reporting right to the, the CMO he was actually responsible for both sales and marketing and parts and service. So big role. Uh, and he was fantastic. Bill Lovejoy, I'm still in contact with today. He's in retirement. He's one of my favorite people in the world and uh, just great. But as the role morphed, it became pretty clear that just having a report to sales and marketing didn't make a lot of sense because we were supporting manufacturing and safety and product and all these other things that go along with it. So the role quickly morphed to have me report to the CFO and then ultimately the CEO. And just, if you look at that journey going from there, when I went back to financial services, it went back to the CMO for that period of time. But since that journey, it hasn't gone to the CMO because it really does reflect the fact that the role is much bigger. So I've, for the most part, ended up reporting to CFOs or COOs or CEOs and that's really what's the elevation of the role now from where the role was, uh, because it's no longer a marketing function. And when companies ask me and they probe me on it, that's one of the things I, I ask them about is where do you have this role reporting to? Um, my best friends are in marketing and I grew up in marketing and I love CMOs and they are near and near to my heart. But if you're serious about data analytics, you're not going to have a report to marketing. You're going to have a report to a broader leadership structure that it ties into. Uh, and that to me is, is really the evolution of, of the role and of the job. 
I, I mentioned, Paul, that you you currently serve on the board of uh, Hyatt Hotels Corporation. You're a past board member of New Star, uh, both large uh, organizations indeed. And I, I wonder, uh, what is it about your background and, and perhaps by extension to others who might follow in your footsteps about the data and analytics background, more generally speaking, that you think uh, is quite suitable for board membership? It's a unique perspective for a board. And to the credit of New Star and Jim Cullen, who is the chairman of New Star, and to the credit of Tom Pritzker, who is the chairman of, of Hyatt, they both recognized it early on. New Star is a little bit of a cleaner fit technology company, specializes in technology or data and analytics work in areas like identity and so on, areas I'm extremely familiar with and, and have lived. Uh, but in the case of Hyatt, what Tom saw early on was the fact that you needed that perspective on the board because of all the issues the board needs, needs to be cognizant of data security, where the firm's going with data and analytics, personalization, technology, all of those trends that go along with it. And, and not surprisingly, Tom asked me to go on the audit committee right away. And I was also on the audit committee of Newstar because guess where data security ends up going these days? It's going to the audit committee and, and, and so on. So it's that perspective. And as you look at both boards, it was just a wonderful balance. Newstar was a great balance. You had a large number of either ex-CEOs or COOs or CFOs on that board. And then I brought a technology and a data and analytics perspective to a technology and data analytics company, which was great. And in the case of Hyatt, we have an audit committee that's out of central casting. It's the best group I've ever worked with. Um, very, very high level uh, CFOs or people that come out of private equity or other spaces. And then I complement that. And it's worked really well. It's been a good experience for me uh, from that standpoint. I, I've been in other situations with boards, uh, but being there has, has been great. And I expect more of it in the future for companies looking for individuals with that background, just because think of what all these companies are dealing with every day. And you have to have a board member that actually understands those topics and areas. Very interesting. Uh, Paul, I also wanted to ask you, as you look to the future, um, are the trends that particularly excite you, those that might be making their way onto your personal or, or professional roadmaps? Every day. It's, uh, I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy store. It's uh, <laughs> when people ask me, how am I feeling about where I'm at at this career? And I, I feel like I'm 25. Uh, I get up every day. There's something new, something exciting happening. And the, the things I reflect upon are really twofold. Number one, many of the challenges we have are being addressed faster and more comprehensively than what we thought. So the challenges on data management, for instance, are being addressed systematically. Um, and that to me is very joyful because all of the challenges we've had on lack of data standardization and all the transformation work and so on and so on has been very, very hard and has really slowed us down. And I think that'll be a quantum leap going forward. And then the second part for, for me is really where we're going with the ability to adopt capabilities. Yes, I'm always excited about where things are going from analytic capabilities, whether we want to call it some form of ML or DL or, or some form of artificial intelligence. That's great, although we've been dabbling in it for three decades. It's more about the fact that the capabilities now can be deployed at scale systematically. I always say, make it standardized, make it govern, and make it repeatable. And in this case, we're now at that point where technology is allowing us to do that open source what's happening with workflow tools. And just about every area we're looking at, technology is now Lego blocks. You no longer have to buy a complete stack. You can buy parts of a stack and cost effectively put it together. 
Uh, and that maybe my, would be my last point in the technology trend that, that just always blows me away. You know, in 1970, it would have cost you a quarter of a billion dollars for one gigabyte of hard drive space. Today, it costs you one cent, one penny, one penny. For one gigabyte. <laughs> so just, just like, you know, picture that in 50 years, what's happened. So a quarter of a billion dollars versus one cent. Uh, and I just expect more of that. The, the quantum leaps in front of us are amazing. The talent is beyond anything I could have ever envisioned. Uh, the field is continuing to grow before my very eyes. And to tell you the truth, I'm just blessed that I've had a front row seat to some of it and have enjoyed every minute of it. And I'm not hanging up my spurs anytime soon. <laughs> well, I wanted to also ask you, as again, as somebody who's been a, a chief uh, for quite some time across a variety of, of important enterprises and institutions, what have been some of the secrets to your success? You know, if you were to advise somebody a couple decades earlier in their career who might wish to have a, a career that looks a little bit like yours, what, what have been some of the difference makers from, you, from, from uh, where you sit now? Well, number one, start with talent. Um, and realize that every day you need to invest in talent and talent development and your organization. Uh, learning and development matters, sense of mission matters. And I'm very proud to say that the thousands upon thousands of people that have been in my organization, 99% of them, if they saw me on one side of the street, would cross the street and say hello to me. And that to me is, is something that's critically important because our assets go home every night in our field then they have choices. They have lots and lots of choices. And if you don't create an environment by which they're going to develop and have joy and sense of purpose, you're going to struggle. Uh, so the human dimension to me has is, is always been important. Um, there was an old line that, that uh, was always said about from Mr. Roberts about there's three keys to ultimate success. Be kind, be kind, be kind. And there is something to be said for that. You still have to deliver and you have to hold people accountable, but you have to really invest the time. Then I think the second part has always been understand the business, learn the business, invest time to, to really make sure you understand what the issues are and spend time listening and learning on that front. It's that old cliche of God gave you two ears and one mouth. So you listen twice as often as you speak. There's something to be said for that and understanding that and, and being with the business partners and feeling it and sensing it and making sure that you have joint accountability and that there's a sense that you're in it with them and not just the tax on their organization because you're an investment area is to me very, very important. Uh, you do have to understand the technical side of the job, but you wouldn't get the role if you didn't have the technical chops and the technical background. Get the human side right. And if you get the human side right, other things tend to fall into place and, and realize it is a human journey. Yes, we're scientists and we get up in the morning and we're supposed to be fact-based and we're supposed to be linear. But what we should always realize is that our brains are functional and emotional simultaneously. And that's the messy thing about being a human being is you're functional and emotional simultaneously. Same thing happens in business. Uh, keen insights across the board. Thank you for sharing, Paul. Um, I, the last trend I want to ask you about is uh, how, how are you feeling about your your Lions in the in the year ahead? <laughs> I'm optimistic. I, uh, I just saw their their owner Sheila uh, Hamp the other day, who's amazing. She was great. Uh, we were both on the side of our spring meeting, chit chatting about it. And we we're both feeling more and more optimistic. And if you're a Lions fan, it is essential to always be optimistic. That's the key with being a Lions fan in uh, Honolulu blue and silver. That's uh, deep in our soul. 
Well, I, I, as a Bengals fan, long suffering, uh, hopefully you'll have an experience like I had last year and hopefully uh, uh, more to come on, on, on both of our ends. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, Paul, thank you so much for, for joining me on Technovation today. What, what a great conversation, emblematic of the remarkable journey that you've had and the depth and breadth of experience you have in data and analytics, a, a field that is itself white hot, as you, you mentioned in a different context earlier. Great to get your perspectives. Uh, best of luck in your, your continued you. journey. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. Welcome, Peter. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.